Today's podcast is sponsored by Composer.Trade, the premier platform for investing in professionally created investment strategies that trade based on logic and data. Composer.Trade is putting the power of quants into the hands of regular investors. With Composer.Trade, you can invest in strategies that execute trades automatically, depending on market movements. You can even build your own strategy from scratch with their drag-and-drop portfolio editor. There's a reason why over $1 trillion is managed by quantitative hedge funds. Stop trading on impulse and start investing smarter today by going to Composer.Trade slash value. That's Composer.Trade slash value. See important disclaimers at Composer.Trade slash disclaimer. All right, hello and welcome to the Yet Another Value podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. If you like this podcast, it'd mean a lot if you could follow, rate, subscribe, review it wherever you're watching or listening to it. With me today, I'm happy to have on the koala. Uh, the koala is not only the first animal that we've had on the podcast, but he's a former buy-side mining analyst, He and he's one of the leaders of the mining and commodity finchwit, and I, I think people are going to be impressed by the depth of knowledge in a sector that's got a lot of play that recently, but... There are many people who remember how to look at mining and commodity players anymore. Anyway, Koala, how's it going? It's going good, Andrew. Great to be here. Uh, it's a nice overcast day. It's still a little warm, which as a coal investor, I'm bittersweet about. It's uh, everyone seems a little down. Uh, it, it feels like uh, it feels like mining before the last uh, year or two <laughs> in we'll the city right now. You know, I, I've done a lot of work on energy recently, and it's been nice. It's a warm winter and everything, but I, I'm with you. I have been thinking like, damn, if we had hit, been hitting 30s in October, nat, nat gas, power price, everything would have been going parabolic, and we just uh, we would have been celebrating. Anyway, we'll get there in a second. Let me just start the podcast the way I do every podcast. First, a disclaimer to remind everyone, nothing on this podcast is investing advice. That's always true. I'll just remind everyone today, Qual and I, we're probably going to dance through a couple of names, a couple of different sectors, so please keep in mind. This is an investing device. We're going to be talking commodities, mining. Those do carry extra degrees of risk. So please do your own work. Keep all of that in mind. Second, a pitch for you, my guest. You know, I only started following you over the past year because uh, everyone started finding mining, commodities, all that. And you've just been so spot on with a lot of your calls. Obviously, like anyone who follows you for more than two weeks is going to be able to tell that you've done a ton of research and you know these names and spaces really well. So just really excited to have you on. Really excited to dance. We'll talk. Uh, Ivanhoe, i.e. electric at one point, but also I really want to talk about all sorts of different things in commodities mine in general. Where do you want to start? Um, let's lead off, I think, just with, uh, I think, the general sector. It's been, uh, it's been very interesting to me how the, the interest levels, um, like, obviously, we'll, we'll, we can talk about coal extensively here, but um, I think just people are kind of waking up again to the reality of the world isn't just software and dating apps. Um, it's or social media and these uh, tech things that are of zero marginal cost uh, that sit on our phones. It's the world's actually made of things. Um, uh, we're going to be talking about the Ivanhoe companies later, but Robert Friedland loves to say, you know, you either have to grow it or mine it. Uh, to make it. Um, I think people are all now starting to wake up to this reality because things are actually uh, noticeably more expensive now. Um, and whether that's the EV trend or putting gas in your car today, um, I mean, what is there to say? It's you, you thought, and you talk more about energy, but 
you've had a decade where the shale revolution basically gave us cheap natural gas and cheap energy. And the U.S. went from something to a massive amount of the energy market, uh, partially because, uh, because of the growth numbers and the growth metrics and the growth multiples. Investors uh, just threw good money after bad and didn't really think about full cycle capital returns or the uh, energy supply and demand. So the world got really drunk on some really cheap energy. Uh, it's a little like being back in college at a fraternity house, uh, what we've had for the last decade. Um, and then I would say, if we go back to mining, if you think about 2014, 2015, when China kind of caught a cold, right at the time that all of the mining industry uh, the big boys were all doing massive capex, levering up their balance sheet because the Chinese miracle was going to continue on forever. Metal demand was just one direction with no volatility in that first derivative of demand. Um, and it turns out China prints in the second half of 15, first half of 16, they print a negative year on year steel production number. And that caught iron ore completely offside. Copper was weak. We had that August 2015 shock devaluation of the yuan one Sunday night. And I, I still remember, uh, like, everything was just down like 5%, 10% because no one realized China had to shock uh, their FX market like that. And what happened then is you have Glencore in September 2015 go, oh, we shouldn't run it three times levered. We need to run it two times levered. And we had to do a capital raise first time since the IPO, because we need to run with less leverage in these volatile commodity markets. You've had, uh, let's just run through these, Anglo-American got absolutely smoked at the time. Ministria was a massive uh, blowout capital project. Uh, just in general, like BHP Rio, they got, they had to, I mean, if you think about it, their costs of producing iron ore, have gone, a C1 in Australia went from starting with a four to starting with a one. Like it really was, we have to innovate. We have to take costs out. We got to maximize productivity. It's not just get these tons and get it on a boat and get it to China. It was, we need margin, value over volume, which became a catchphrase for all the big miners. It's almost like they all said, that's a great line. I'm going to use it. And capital allocation became a huge issue because everyone said, you just light a ton of money on fire. You're not building anything anymore. Ivan Glazenberg of Glencore goes, we did this to ourselves. Why in God's name did we, are we all building? We control that we have the projects, we have the production. If we produce too much, we don't get a price. We destroy value. Why are we doing this? And so you never really saw major M&A after 2016. In fact, ironically, when everyone was distressed, the big miners like BHP or Rio, who are more iron ore, but would love more copper, they're like, oh, you know, we have our list of eight to 10 mines in the world we would love to be a part of. But they were also shell-shocked. They weren't willing to say, yeah, we'll pay a price that's a little expensive today because over the next 10 years, it'll look brilliant. No one was actually willing to do that. Um, and so you had then massive deleveraging. I mean, Glencore went from 20 plus billion of net debt to now they're down to, was it 10 billion? 
Uh, and here's an ironic thing about Glencore, which I've talked about immensely. But if you go back and look at the second half 15, first half 16, the trough EBITDA, if you just look at that annualized EBITDA, was like $7.5 billion. And that's like the worst it ever got. Um, I think all of us could agree that a $7.5 billion EBITDA business in a worst case scenario could probably run with 15 to 20 billion of net debt if you termed it out properly so that you didn't have a lumpy maturity profile. Um, but you know what? Glencore now says, nope, 10 billion. We learned our lesson. Rio Tinto, you know, they also, they're, they're running with less than 10 billion of net debt. Like the only one that's really actually been a little more flexible among the big boys is Vale, which had a massive tragedy with the dam uh, break that killed 300 people back in, I believe it was January, 2019, um, obviously has massive legacy liabilities and reclamation um, from that. They incorporated those um, legal obligations in their adjusted net debt number. Um, and now they've kind of recognized, okay, like, that's a billion to $2 billion a year of cash outflow over the next five or six years. Um, but it's kind of just part of our business. They no longer include that in the net debt profile. And they've said their adjusted net debt target is around 20 billion versus I recall a time it was 10 billion. They're the only one who's really kind of said, actually, we have more flex in the balance sheet uh, over the last couple of years. Everyone else has actually realized um, that since they've had to go on this journey, the mining industry now is much more equity versus debt. And in part, that also means that if you try, you and I tried to start a mining company today with a world-class project, we would need more equity, which means our cost of capital is higher, which means it's so much harder. You need to have a project that's even that much better you need to go find those rare few investors that actually would entertain it. And it's like the same thing I joke, which uh, if I could raise $100 million to do a mining uh, cross-asset fund, I would do it in a heartbeat. But I haven't for one simple reason. No one's thinking that way right now. So I actually joked about this uh, when I was having a drink with a buddy at a bar. And I think I saw the come across our phones that uh, the Shell CEO said that the energy industry should be taxed more uh, to help deal with this energy crisis so people uh, can afford their energy bills. And I, I, I laughed immensely. And I think I even tweeted this out that uh, it's really fun to watch regulatory capture when you've had to go through these hard yards, whether that's deleveraging and uh, putting in all these rules that, and many of them are to make for a safer work environment, a cleaner environment, but it's so much harder today versus 30 years ago, uh, whether it was to be to start a hedge fund or to start a mine, that it's kind of funny when someone, you can see someone basically burning the ladder as they're climbing up it so no one can follow them. And coal, great example there. Um, no coal company is going to have like debt in the West, basically. Whitehaven's net cash, Yan Coal I recall's net cash. Peabody's going to be net cash even after the sureties in a couple, uh, in, a, in a quarter or two. Uh, and, and what are all the coal companies now say? You know what? All equity is the way to go. Yep. Coal, coal, you know, we think it's going to be longer, but we just don't want to have to explain that to the banks every, every five years 
and then have distress in our business financially. So you know what? We're just going to go all equity. So if you and I found the greatest coal mine in the world that's never been developed, we would have to go find equity. And the first question would be, how am I going to look my kids or my grandkids in the eye, even as a billionaire, uh, because I built, a, I financed a coal mine? Well, that would be the first question. But then the second question would be, hey, I, I'm not 100% familiar with coal mine uh, timing, but it's probably going to take, what, three to five years to come online? Maybe more. You can tell me if I'm wrong. But the next question would be, hey, in three to five years, will there be any demand for coal? And you and I could go say, we can make all these arguments for it, uh, coal, and the same thing would apply to a lot of energy projects, everything. We can make a lot of arguments, but ultimately, everyone's going to be like, I'm writing a billion dollar check into something that's going to go to zero terminally. Like, I just can't take that risk. So yeah, you're just not going to be able to fund it. These guys have created the, this really interesting moat. The nobody thinks anything can get built anymore moat. No, nothing can get built anymore. And then to make it even more surreal, um, even if we talked about things we want to build, no one's really been looking. Because if you think about it, everyone's woken up to what, what was Robert Friedland's lovely line on Ivan Mines? He goes, it was an overnight 25-year success. Um, in terms of when he first got to the Congo, looked at, started looking at Kamoa, found Kamoa, then they found Kakula, and that was just, and I think it's an important thematic here, Kakula was discovered in late 15, early 16. Kamoa Kakula is now in production, but that's because really that got really accelerated because when you find something so extraordinary that it's self-evident to people, you find a way. Things that are worth, the, the world-class projects somehow find a way. And it's an interesting uh, thing I've noticed in that the buy side and the investors will look at companies and say, we're the only game in town. Uh, the cost of capital is so high. You need more money. I'm going to drive a, I'm going to demand an absurd deal from you. Uh, and what they haven't actually, because we really haven't had a lot of examples recently, I think Ivanhoe's probably the best one recently, is great projects don't just get financed by guys like you and me. Uh, it's a, but those are rare because, what is it, one, one in a thousand outcrops is a deposit and one in a thousand deposits become a mine. Like, but so let's say you found one of these things and you don't find a first uh, a 99th percentile, you find a 95th percentile, what is your prize? Um, if the binding companies are not doing M&A, there's permitting issue, there's permitting risk, there's engineering risk. Everything costs a little more than the feasibility study says it's going to cost. Um, just in general, um, you ha don't have the same incentive to go look for things. So We'll we'll talk about copper a lot here, but like LME week, everyone's talking about, yeah, the next two years, there is copper supply coming on. QB2, Calaveco, Oyotolgoy Underground, Kamokakula, phase, whichever. That thing's going to have phases uh, until uh, our kids graduate from college. There's just so much copper there and high, R, high ROIC opportunities. But um, what's coming in 2025, 2026? Um, truth is we... We don't really have much. So that's where it gets interesting. Just like these timelines and these long lead, these long capital cycles, it's, 
okay, no one's exploring, no one's buying anything. So like, you're not going to have juniors go out looking for stuff, trying to find that next great mine. The miners are going to buy back stock. They're going to focus on, look, we're good stewards of capital. Um, and this is a huge thing. I, I have a sub stack that's been 80% done for three weeks about how capital allocation is going from a headwind to the tailwind in the mining industry, because we've gone from people have just dated this sector and said, okay, I believe China's going to be a little better than I think for the next six months. That means dividends and buyback announcement be a little bit more. So I'm going to, I'm going to date the sector and then I want my money back. Yep. Uh, the, the industry has to regain the trust that it is a good steward of capital and that this industry needs more capital because when you have low multiples um, basic and low, and low multiples and low leverage, you're basically the market's way of saying we should decapitalize this industry. This industry has too much capital. It's, it's, it's X growth. It just destroys value. So what we need to do is we need to pull capital. All the free cash flow comes back to us, whether it's through buybacks or dividends, and we aren't necessarily putting it back in. So you need the industry needs to regain uh, the market multiple to invest. But until that until that happens, and then we see M and A, only then will you see the exploration dollars come back to refill the pipeline, and then we get back to an overnight twenty five year success. When, when these the 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 straight the, the river sticks for the mining industry is brutal. Twenty eleven. To even if you caught the 2016 bottom, it, the 2010s were not very fun. Uh, but when it's good, the party lasts for a long time because it takes a little while for the cops to show up and say, there's too many people, you're all drunk, you're doing stupid things, it's time to go home. It takes a while to get out, uh, get out to where the mine site is and tell us we're doing that. Let, let me jump in with a few questions here. So the first would be, I think you described very rationally, right? Like if you've got a coal company, any company trading for two times free cash flow, right? That's an implied 50% cost of capital, right? Even if you've got a mining project, an expansion, a drill, that the returns on it are 30%, right? Which in a treasuries are yielding even today 4%. In a 4% world, like if something will yield 30%, that's a great risk adjusted. But if your stock is yielding 50%, you can't go do that, right? So like the capital discipline's getting imposed. You saw it with BTU when they were saying, oh, we might go buy something at four times EBITDA or we might do an expansion and the market was just melting down. But I I guess I do have a question on that. Like I hear you and part of that is resulting in everybody likes to talk about, hey, I've had, I've done podcasts on TAN. I've done podcasts on Uranium. Hey, the supply is not there, right? Demand steady to going up and the supply is actually dwindling because no one's drilling, no one's... And I hear that and it all makes sense to me. And like, I am kind of a believer, but just as a generalist, I can't help but think like, oh, this is what people thought in 2007, 2008 with energy when we had the oil super cycle and oil hit 150 and two years later, it's 40. This is what people thought in 2016 with energy when oil is at 100 and I knew people who were underwriting global supply curves and saying oil can never go under 75 again. Guess what? Three years later, it's negative. Uh, you know, so I'm just... I'm just, as a generalist, I'm trying to like put those frames in mind because I believe the super cycle, but it's a little scary to kind of think about that. It is. And it's, uh, I think in light of what's been happening in, uh, in what I'll call um, uh, fun finance of crypto this week, 
Um, we've all had jokes. We've all had jokes about margin. There's been a lot of margin call jokes to make, rightfully so. But a line comes to mind that let's invert, which is it's not panicking if you're first. Um, I think that's the thing the generals have to wrap their head around. It's yes, in 2007, everyone's talking about how much money they've made in mining, uh, how great these companies are, great stewards of capital. Where were those people in 02? Um, where are those people in 2016 when tech bonds traded at 60 to 70 cents a face, 20% plus yield to worst, and the stock was trading at two, three US, and all the stock was basically saying is these things are distressed, we're never going to need commodities ever again. It's not that bad anymore. Uh, but you have these moments where you just got to take a step back, and one of the things just being a free agent and thinking with a little more time horizon than a pod shop, um, take a step back and say, okay, do, do I know the next $50 move in Newcastle one way or the other? Uh, no, I, I don't have those, the resources to know the exact balance of energy units on every given day, like on VTOL or Glencore. Um, but what I can do is look out and say, okay, roughly speaking, what is like the average coal price going to be over the next few years or the next decade? And I think there's enough information out there given the lead times and lags for the major pieces to move that you can say, okay, I see something here. Is the multiple compelling for what I'm bringing coming into? Uh, like, as we joked about Peabody a little bit during that call, um, there are things you can say when you're trading at 2% free cash flow yield, and there are things you cannot say when you're trading at two times free cash flow. Just, and, just, so every, just so everyone knows what we're referring to on Peabody, Peabody reported uh, results last week and the results were strong. Commodity prices are strong. The stock was up 20% of the results. And then as management started talking on the call and saying, we're not going to buy back stock. We might go do M&A. We might drill a new mine. Their stock- Andrew, people- Andrew, Andrew. Met coal, Seaboard Met coal is an incredibly misunderstood market it has a lot of potential, far more than everyone appreciates. And we view it as a strategic growth opportunity for this company. And you could just see everyone just having a, in their head going, has anyone told this guy <laughs> where his stock is? And, and the stock, it went from plus 20 to flat on the day, literally as management is reading the call. And you don't, you normally don't see that unless management comes out and says, hey, the outlook is a disaster inventory is rotting on the shelves like he wasn't saying any of that he was just saying here's my cap allocation and investors sell 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 but, but also if i have no problem with them going and buying a met coal mine uh i think there are things that peabody should buy that they're a logical acquirer of um and listen but if he had just said guys we look at everything similar to what Arch said when Coronado approached them a year ago. It would be rude not to take the call and hear it out. Doesn't mean we're going to do it. But with that said, guys, um, we hope to have a deal with the sureties uh, in one queue. Um, But until we have that deal, and until uh, we have paid down all of our debt, which we've classified as current with this quarter, we really want to flash that to you. Um, It's very important 
to recognize that we can't do buybacks and dividends. Yep. And if I can't buy back my stock at two times free cash flow, can you blame me for thinking three times free cash flow to grow this company might be a good use of capital until I have that option? I think if Pete heard that and everyone said, okay, he gets it. If he does something, he's going to explain to us why it's compelling. And also he's acknowledged what we all are looking at and seeing in terms of the free cash flow yield, the buyback potential, the dividends. It's, it's kind of, you, you, you have to acknowledge if you're going to keep the free cash flow, that you're doing stuff with it, that investors feel like, not only that, it's actually going to create value, but you have to message in a way that a lot of your marginal buyers and sellers, fast money hedge funds, don't be like, okay, my stock, it's going to go down 20% because you announced something. Uh, I think a good example of this was everyone hated QB2 for tech. Um, when they were going to do it, uh, they said they were going to do it in 18, which they kind of had to do it because QB1 was run out of ore. So they kind of had to touch the sulfide uh, deposit porphyry below the oxide. Uh, so they, it was, And this was going to be like a $5 billion project. The NPV at $3 copper, 8%, was like a billion dollars. So you kind of could quickly just go, okay. This thing blows out by 20% on the CapEx, and this is not, this is NPV break even at $3 copper, which four years ago, $3 copper was the incentive price. Pretty marginal project. Everyone's like, why are you guys doing this? This is crazy. And then what they do is they go out and they, uh, they did, they got a Japanese trading house, I believe it was Sumitomo, to come into the project at the asset level by 30%. Uh, at a much higher multiple, kind of le- lending, kind of le- lending out the lower whack of a Japanese trading house, uh, and they brought in a project finance uh, facility. Now QB two now, even though even with the pandemic, it's going to cost seven billion, not five billion. There, there's been a one and a half two billion dollar capex blowout, but it stayed on schedule. Um, so if we look back, what do you know? There's been capex issues. Um, but QB2 actually looks kind of brilliant now because if we tried to build QB2 today, if we think about inflation, labor, everyone's thinking about what could they build if they had something, there's less mining talent, whether that's engineers, project managers, how many people have actually built a multi-billion dollar mining operation in the high Andes before uh, who's still in the business because we haven't built that much in the last half decade. Um, that project probably, I guess, if we scoped it out today, would probably be not the seven billion they're talking about. It's probably going to scope out around eight, um, which means let's go back and run everything. What copper price do we need to make an eight billion dollar project work like QB two at Q- it starts with the four, and so it kind of looks brilliant because they have the sunk capital, uh, and three dollar copper is the new two dollar copper. And $4 is the new $3. And at $4 copper, yeah, the, the torque on QB2 looks pretty damn compelling. Uh, but that's, you have to go through this journey where, like, you got to sometimes be a contrarian, but then you have to de-risk things. Like when tech came through New York with the after the Japan deal and said, yeah, the IRR was 11% in the feasibility study, but look what it looks like for us when we factor in the project finance the asset level sell down, 
and we're not going to have to put another dollar into this thing until year three. Um, you go, oh, th- this is, I-, I see how you're going on this journey. Peabody didn't do that. Peabody's I, just I, like, Peabody thought you. they were Zuckerberg with the metaverse. <laughs> That's an, I hear you, but so like on the tech example you gave, like one of the, they did bring a partner in. That's nice. And look, I'm not an expert, so I, I'm just talking about what you said. But they brought in a project fi- finance partner with, uh, or sorry, a partner on the project with a lower cost capital than which everyone should do. That's fantastic, right? But one of the key things you said in there is the cost was supposed to be five billion. They blew it out to seven billion. Guess what? I've never seen a mine or anything come in under budget or even close to budget for the most part. So the the cost blew out, and it sounds like they kind of got bailed out with copper prices running because no supply can come online. And I realize that's a little bit of a chicken or egg problem where nobody wants to fund a new mine. Every mine's over budget. So prices go up for some reasons. But at the same time, I, I hear a project that came in 30 to 40% over budget. And it seems like it got bailed out a little bit by commodity prices. And that does make me nervous. And I, I guess I'll let you comment there. And then I do want to talk a little bit more coal. And then we've got to talk IE. So we've just got tons to talk about. Well, I think it's interesting that you bring that up because before we like Ivano Mines building Kamoka Kula in a middle of a pandemic, they delivered that on time on budget in the DRC. Lord knows how many conversations I've had where everyone's like, Koala, the DRC, like, are you crazy? But they delivered on that. And so it's, <laughs> I think it's a, uh, it, is the, it is the tricky issue here. Like, how do you explain these things? How do you justify this growth? And I think it's getting investor buy-in that this is kind of how it goes. And you'd rather be the first person to be building a project so you can get all the talent than be building a project when all of your competitors are building mega projects. And to get, whether it's from the engineering consultants or Bechtel, you're getting the A team, not the D team. Let let me switch... Let me let me switch over to something a little different. So we've talked coal a couple times. We talked Peabody. You have been pounding the drum on White Castle Australian coal company uh, for about a year now, maybe before a year, as far as I know. And people can go look at the stock price and see that has been a nice thing to pound. But I just want to ask you: know, when people look at coal, obviously U.S. focused investors think coal is dying. Today, people look at coal and see really high coal prices. They see most of the guys have gotten discipline on just return all that cash to shareholders. Uh, I think a lot of people look at coal and say, oh, prices are high now, run it back to before pandemic prices, run it back to year ago prices. They're worried about the sustainability of prices. So I just want to ask, when you look at coal, and I know you're so bullish Whitehaven, we have some discussion. We had a lot of questions, why Whitehaven over YAL? But just overall, when you look at coal, like what are you seeing that you think a lot of people are missing? I realize I threw a lot at you, but I know you'll ramble as long as I let you on coal. So, Look, I think what I'm seeing is, there's really not what what is the what is the thir- the seaborne thermal coal market? It's like a billion tons. It, it's 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 I, I, I might be off by a few hundred here or there, but that's not the point. Um, I think bulk commodities in general, um, and this applies to iron ore as well. There are commodities that you know it when you see it. Copper metal in the LME is 99.9 copper. Like it's, it is what it is. But when we talk coal, met coal, iron ore, lithium, spodumene concentrate, um, 
there are these intermediate commodities that are not in their final form. And we think about these markets as one massive market. Well, coal, yeah, when 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 everything's cheap, energy's abundant, coal's abundant, uh, there's not differentials there. But the Newcastle 6,000 high energy coal market, that's 200 tons of a billion ton seaborne market. And because we all want cleaner air, we want more efficiency. Most of the new coal power plants, these Healy's, H-E-L-E, um, that have more efficiency, they're designed with a scope. And that scope is they need high energy coal. You're not going to take this high moisture, low energy stuff that maybe it's low ash, but are you going to take some 4,000 kcal stuff out of Indonesia or somewhere else? Um, your boiler might not be on spec for that. Um, and so in a world of abundance and no cares about emissions and pollution, and I think there is something to be said about the fact that uh, we have effectively exported to China and frontier markets emissions that otherwise would have had to be incurred in the first world over the last few decades under globalization. And that's not tolerable anymore. What I look at with coal is high energy coal is branded with the same with the same way that terrible coal is lignite or really junky low energy stuff, um, but it's needed and it's going to be needed for twenty to thirty years. Yep. Maybe we're going to go all renewable in the U.S., but the U.S. is three hundred million people, and if you go look at say, Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda, Ethiopia, if you just add up the population of those countries, you're pretty close to the U.S. in and of itself. Um, those guys aren't going wind and solar um, 24-7. Uh, so I look at the situation and I say, I have a high energy coal product that is rare. You wouldn't mind the crappy stuff if you had abundant high energy coal that you can't really build new supply. I mean, Vickery, Whitehaven's been very honest at, at this multiple, that's not being funded off of the Whitehaven balance sheet. Customers are going to have to come in and support that project being built. So I think that we're having a little bit of a realization in this slow education happen about high energy coal versus low energy coal. And like, yeah, the, if we can put on wind, solar, use a vanadium redox battery as a firming solution and turn off a dirty coal plant, I think we all agree that would be lovely. Uh, but the role Newcastle is going to play, the high energy Newcastle, that, that has a long runway. Um, Can I just push back on one piece of that? So sure. everything you said there, I, I don't really disagree with any of it. But, you know, if I go back to 2019, I'm, I'm looking at Newcastle, which is the Australian high energy coal we're talking about. The price is 75 to 100, right? If I'm yep. looking today, the price is 300 to 350. And yes, we, we had, I didn't choose a year ago because there was a lot of COVID funkiness last year. Well, still, up, so I didn't choose up. a year. 
Go ahead. But pull up JKM LNG. Pull up Japan LNG. G. This, this is exactly. This is exactly what podcast listeners want to hear. They want to. They want to hear somebody uh, looking at things just in real time on Bloomberg. Okay, I, I pulled that up. What am I looking for here? Where was it in 2019? All right, let's see. Uh, I must put up the wrong thing. So Bloomberg didn't tell me. So you can go ahead and tell me if but, you want. But basically, uh, one of the things Glencore used to talk about in 1718 when they bought Rio's coal mines was go look at the parity, the Newcastle parity price, wherein Japan LNG is like eight or 10 bucks yeah. or even six bucks. Well, it never traded there uh, because energy is abundant. And of course, you'd rather burn LNG and burn a ton of coal. Yep. All else equal. Well, in a world of energy scarcity, where you also have rules on the emissions and how you generate energy, but the actual molecules and units are scarce, these are the things that actually start to kick in. If you can't get the, if you if if you need more, if you, if you need more LNG, but you can't get a cargo. That's why so, the Newcastle's there. I, I think this is a, a very smart way of addressing and also my worry of addressing my worry and also part of my worry here. Like how much is coal right now a bank shot on, hey, Europe lost all of their LNG because of Ukraine and Russia and LNG prices everywhere are going parabolic. And if for some reason Russia gas is allowed again, you know, somebody drills, LNG equipment takes a long time. But if for some reason... Nat gas normalizes from 200 in Europe to 20. Let's call it 20, which is still, I think last year it was in the 20s, 30, whatever. If it yeah. normalizes to 30, it, does this whole coal story collapse? Um, we're not at 400 Newcastle or 300 Newcastle in that world. Um, we're probably sitting, look, as I would say, before the Ukraine invasion, Newcastle was flirting with a two-handle. It's a function of, then where are inventories? Um, is it hot in the summer? Is it cold in the winter? Yep. It's a more functional market if Russia's back or the Russia equivalent uh, is brought online. Um, and so, yeah, you're not going to get these prices, but I'm happy. If, if Newcastle starts with a one um, in three years and continues there, uh, I'm totally fine. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, for generalists, a lot of them look at kind of similar to what I did. They look at Newcastle 300 right now and they say, this is a, a scarcity driven spike and nobody is willing to underwrite. Everybody's underwriting Newcastle back to 75 next year, let's call it. Right. Yeah. And what you're saying is, okay, it's, it can't sustain 300 forever. Right? You know, but what you're saying is similar to some of the stuff. A, a lot of other people have pointed out. I, I think this on refining, Yes, this current spike can't last forever, but it's not going back to where it was previously for all sorts of reasons, uh, for all sorts of reasons. And nobody's willing to underwrite even slight premiums to kind of the old cycle margins. If, if we have two or three years of 300 average Newcastle, um, all this talk about why aren't, why aren't the energy companies drilling? Why aren't you investing? Um, the conversation will turn to um, Paul. Mr. Flynn, uh, Vickery, yeah, let's go. Let's go. Uh, you, you, in a weird way, high prices are the solution for high prices. It's cliche to say, but 
And that's what journalists worry about, right? Like, (laughs) when does the supply glut come? But these aren't, but these these companies aren't trading at eight times EBITDA. And people go, oh, you take the coal price, cut it in half, and these things aren't trading on 50% free cash flow. They're trading on uh, 15. Cool. Um, If that happens tomorrow, like if that literally happens tomorrow, that's a valid point. But if you give me a year at 50, and just to make the math simple, because buybacks are circular, you just give that back to me as a dividend. Well, that 15 by simple math, if the stock price just went from a dollar to 50 cents, 15 cents divided by 50, that's a 30% free cash flow yield. Yep. Um, okay. Um, what's your alternative investment idea? And I've built out models and it's so crazy because it, they're so cheap that literally, you know, I'll, I'll estimate, this is so stupid, I'll estimate like monthly cash flow and literally every week or every month I'll build out the model and be like, Shit, the stock the stocks only moved two percent, and they just fills up another eight percent of their market cap in cash on the balance sheet, and it's still going. Like every day, you're getting so much. It's wild. It's just wild. Well, let's use let's use Whitehaven as an example. And by the way, it's going to be so fun when we go from free cash flow capital allocation to the total other end of the spectrum on Ivanhoe Electric in like five minutes. Uh, just going to be absolutely a great flip, uh, sw- flipping the page for the viewers, but. I think you look at Whitehaven, they, they put some guarantee, they go one and a half billion of free cash flow generated in the first quarter. Now, there's that's a pre-tax number. They, they, they're going to go to quarterly, but you sit there and you say, okay, to the point I kind of made, like, if it ends tomorrow, yeah, okay. If it all ends tomorrow, I get why you're short. I totally get why you're short if it ends tomorrow. And we never have another spike ever again. We're going to be wearing shorts and golf polos in February in Manhattan. It's going to be mild. Climate change is going to take away the heating season. We're, we're, I can see you. I, I, we're going to blow you off our listeners, but both you and I are wearing polos in November in Manhattan. So we're, we're close. So uh, that, that, who knows? Turns out uh, climate change is going to solve the, the energy crisis for us. But uh, in that world, that one and a half billion Obviously, we're halfway through the second quarter for them. Fiscal year end is June. Um, they're going to generate more free cash, obviously, because, okay, Newcastle starts the two. Cool. Tell me what the last six weeks were. Tell me what their production and volumes were. They generate more money. So let's just assume 2Q covers the tax bill. One and a half billion of free cash flow um, is on a $900 share, 900 shares outstanding because the milestone shares are not economic and except in the takeout. Uh, we're talking about what a buck fifty plus. Like we're just trying to get to a world where the buyback is at. I think I did the math at six twenty five or six fifty. That quarter of free cash flow alone covers the buyback of two hundred forty million shares. Um, so in that world, it's what are you going to do with this cash flow? Like it's just funny to me that there's a point now where you almost have a put on some of these names because they're not lighting the cash on fire. Uh, that, I mean, just, I, I mean, literally, I heard, I heard a major fund is shorting Whitehaven now because they think uh, the energy crisis is solved in Europe, gas is full, uh, winter is going to be warmer. And I kind of look and I go, and you're going to, like, these guys can buy back 10, 20% of average daily trade value all year. And it's, 
it's on the books already. (laughs) And you don't think we're going to have a crisis ever again? You obviously talked a lot about Whitehaven there. And the most popular question I think we actually got when I said you were coming on is, why Whitehaven over YAL, which another Australian kill, I believe it trades for two or three turns cheaper than Whitehaven, which obviously when you're talking these very low, like if something's trading at 20 times EBITDA and a competitor's at 23, they're basically even. But if something's at five and the competitor's at two, like that's a big difference, you know? So So, a lot of people are just wondering, why is Whitehaven still the horse that you're kind of sticking at? So I need to go back and, update on my Ann Cole work. Um, I used to own it, wish I still did, obviously. Um, but I think there's a few factors there. One, um, most of Ann Cole's production is API 5, which is not Newcastle 6,000. It's called Newcastle 5,500. It's a lower energy coal. It is not the creme de la crap. Yep. API 5 prices uh, are like 165 not this 400 or 300 we've been talking about, which, yeah, if you think the energy crisis is solved, Newcastle 6,000 is not going to trade at this massive premium to API 5. So I totally understand if you think that this thing is solved, same way when iron ore demand is not the best, 58% iron ore and 65% iron ore don't trade at a massive spread. Yep. Because you're not trying to optimize the furnace, to maximize output. You just want to keep the furnace warm. You don't need as much, you just don't have as much tension and call on molecules where that premium product will get the premium it merits. Um, the abundance solves that. But so API 5, um, which fine, I'd, I'd rather just have the higher quality coal. You have a major Chinese shareholder um, who it'll be dividends, it won't be buybacks, which sure, if you're an Australian investor or I don't think you can do franking there because it's a, uh, yeah, I think you can, they have fully frank dividends. So if you're an Australian investor and you have the tax and you don't have tax leakage on the dividends, fine, you can buy it back yourself, but it's I low think, float. I think that's it's low right. float. Yeah. It's low float. Um, like Glencore sold their 5% stake in a overnight like block earlier this year. Um, so I look at a situation where I have a major shareholder, um, they're going to pay dividends, um, but they can do what Peabody alluded to. They can grow for the sake of growth. And I don't know, I, I, there is a valuation multiple where you just say, look, I'm just under the existing dividend policy. I, I can't really lose. I'm not in position today to answer that question if it's that cheap. Um, but I do know that Whitehaven has a premium product. I don't think Vickery's valued in it. And I think I have a good capital allocation strategy. And a big thing is capital allocation goes from a headwind to the tailwind in this industry. And we realize that this industry can create value through investing more capital is those who have the ability to create more value because they have good projects they have ways to like de-bottleneck existing operations, they're going to get a higher multiple. Simple as that. And so Yan Cole, I mean, how many, how many uh, institutions in the limited number of institutions who actually can own coal? Low float, capital allocation, the, the audience for Yan Cole is smaller. Now that could completely change. And I've not done the, the big deep dive there. Um, 
I think like, look, New, and frankly, I probably should do the same thing on New Hope, but Whitehaven until very recently was the only Australian name that if you were an offshore investor had liquidity that you really had to pay attention to in Australia. That's a, so there's also a familiarity there for me. Um, I, I'm not saying, oh, I've done all the work deep as I have on Whitehaven on those two names. And I'm telling you, this is the one. There's a price for everything. Yep. Um, yep. That makes total- it, it merits the work. It merits the work. That makes total sense. I do want to be cognizant of time. So if it works for you, I, I could ask about Tim Cole all these uh, all day, but let's switch over to, you know, when we first reached out, the, you said the company I want to talk about is Ivanhoe Electric. The ticker there is IE. It IPO'd over the summer, I believe. The market cap is a, a little bit over a billion dollars. It trades US and Canadian. But I, I just want to go over there and we can run through that thesis in the next 15 or 20 minutes that works out. So I'll just toss okay. it over to you. What's so look, uh, what is IE and why is it so interesting to you? Well, I think it's funny because we were talking like you, you said, Andrew, we got a lot of questions on Ivanhoe. I'm like, and I, and I think not to tease you as a generalist, but anyone who pulls up Ivanhoe on CNBC.com or whatever, the US listed one's Ivanhoe Electric. Um, but there's also Ivanhoe Mines. Well, it, we, it, we were going to we were gonna talk about it. I made this mistake last week when we were originally going to have the conversation. So, yeah. Well, and then if you get even more historical, uh, Turquoise Hill, which Rio Tinto is trying to buy out right now, used to be called Ivanhoe when Robert Friedland uh, ran that company. So I think it's actually, uh, it was a good laugh because I think it's kind of a, first of all, all the same founder, major shareholder. Um, I think it's a fun conversation because I think to understand Ivanhoe Electric, which again, exploration, pre-revenue, everything we talked about, these, these things take forever to build, 25-year overnight success. Without understanding Ivanhoe Mines, um, you're not going to really appreciate Ivanhoe Electric. So uh, just very briefly, Ivanhoe Mines, uh, what is it trading at? Like, What's its Canadian ticker, right? I think the U.S. is like six, seven bucks right now. Okay. Uh, seven, like 1.4, 1.5. It's basically a $10 billion company uh, off the top of my head. There you have in Kamokakula, which the Kamokakula land is 50% joint venture with the gin mining. The Western Forelands area around it is 100% Ivanhoe Mines. Um, there you have what will be in a few years, the second or third largest copper mine in the world. And because there's basically a whole basin, it's an ocean of copper effectively that they've found west of Colise. In due time, that will be the largest uh, mining operation in copper mine in the world uh, as they mine the various uh, trends underground and they build more concentrators, they get more hydropower, uh, because they upgrade more turbines on the Congo River and they get the transmission lines and then they get a road to Angola. They maybe get a railroad so they don't have to truck to Durban or Dar es Salaam to concentrate. So there's a, there's a multi-decade story there, but Kakula, 50 plus percent IRR on conservative copper prices. So they found it in 16 and it's already in production and it got commissioned during the pandemic. That's fast from guys, we found another thing here and it's better than anything else we found to five years later, if it's good enough, people get moving. Um, and But now we've talked about capital allocation, we've talked about dividends, we've talked about buybacks. Um, 
Ivano slid a comment about one day of dividends in one of their presentations earlier this year. But the reality is they can keep reinvesting in growth at 30 plus percent IRRs in copper. Um, I think, and the market's kind of understood that. The investors are conditioned to it. They understand. Yeah, yeah go do that. You, you, you like, no, go, please go do that. You have that bespoke opportunity. Like you have these properties, you found them, you have the skill sets. If someone else wants it, they have to buy you. So go do that. Like you have the pipeline of projects and we have confidence you can execute on them. So no one's harping on Ivanhoe to take free cash flow and buy back stock or this it, or that. It, it's the old, it's the old earning the right to invest, right? And I do think like yes. we've talked nobody wants people to invest in coal, but a lot of them don't have the credibility to invest because historically they've just, you know, it's the old oil oil wildcat or oil's at a hundred and he says, it's going to two hundred. Let's go drill, drill, drill. And then he's bankrupt at 70. Yeah. This is a guy, they found it, they found a great project, they successfully executed, they got run. So the shareholders who backed him. They don't want the dividend yet. They say, you've got the right to, we believe in you, go do it. Yeah. And someone can say, oh, the multiple isn't that, is it, it trades at a premium. Like, of course it should. It 100% should. World-class projects deserve world-class multiples. And you have to earn the right to invest. The whole sector probably needs to 2x in multiple, uh, frankly, just just from uh, on a broader level. Um, but. I look at that, the earn to invest, and not to go all the way back to coal, but you heard Whitehaven talk a little about, you know, Vickery, maybe we can pull on a million tons here or there. We can maybe pull some stuff forward. Small capital, though. Um, it's interesting because there's a point where you can say, guys, we're buying back 25% of our stock every year. Like, I could go to 30, but can I just go do this? Like, there's, there's a point where balance is called for. And that's a key line I heard at LME Week from all the big mining companies. And they're going, where are you going to get the battery metals? How are you going to grow? Well, we're, we really want to have a balanced approach to returns to shareholders and growth. We don't want to, and, and basically like, uh, it, it's the new value over volume. No one has a project. The people who have projects, well, if they weren't built yet, are they world-class incredible projects or are they tier twos? Well, if we all build at the same time, we're all going to have CapEx blowouts because there's a limited amount of talent. Yep. Um, so let's just have a balanced, sensible approach. It's, it's really a self-regulating mechanism that it's kind of like, guys, until we're at 15, 20 times EBITDA, because everyone wakes up to what we've created and how long it's going to take to solve it and how much capital it's going to take, we're not going to act like drunken sailors. When you give us permission to do that, we will do that. But that is the longer cycle. So I go back to Ivanhoe and you go, well, where's the copper growth going to come from? Well, you know, Ivanhoe Mines, the moment they finish phase three, they're already going to be talking about phase four. Um, that's And so that's a really unique thing because let's now go, it's the DRC. People have gotten comfortable now to some degree with the DRC because they've seen a success story. But if we also think about what you have to go where the geology is. So um, where are the great copper mines? Well, Ivanhoe is an incredible discovery in the DRC. Glencore is in the DRC. Um, but Glencore also just went through mostly in oil, not in the Congo, uh, a massive bribery scandal uh, that they paid a 1.5 billion fine for. Um, you go to these frontier jurisdictions, um, Western investors, for all the reasons of 
you've destroyed capital. It's also like, how do you do business in some of these places when, like, I think a lot of people, there's a lot of people in the West who, first of all, couldn't point out Washington, D.C. on a map, but (laughs) they also couldn't point out, like, they couldn't really go, okay, I have a rough idea of where countries are in Africa or, or the nuances of the continent. Um, but you got to go where the geology is. Um, and to quote a comment from a now retired CEO, it's like, we kind of know where the copper is. It's, it's, it's in Africa, in the copper belt, uh, and it's in like Siberia. Well, Siberia is completely off the reservation now. To quote, uh, to quote the founder of Ivanhoe at the FD Mining Summit, Russia's the new ESG. Uh, it's just, <laughs> nope, we're not going there. And so you have to go find these projects. And, but also, we also have this reshoring and kind of resiloing of the world. Yep. So like Senator Manchin, he, he wants more battery metals domestically. He wants manufacturing. Well, let's go back to the West. And what Ivanhoe Electric is, is over the course of the last few decades, I mean, a guy who loves, who's found Bwasi Bay, Oyotogoy, and Kamoa probably one of just an, an absurd track record of exploration success. Uh, he had Ivanhoe Mines working in Africa, but he had a, he, he obviously looked at everything. I mean, the, the famous thing I love about Robert is, I've, I've been told this by multiple of his employees, um, he's, he'll call you 24 seven and jump right in to what's on his mind. But the only thing he'll really get mad at you for in exploration, he won't get mad if you have a barren hole, drill a duster, but if you finish a hole still in mineralization and didn't keep going, he will lose it because why would you stop? This business is hard enough as it is. Why would you stop when you're on site and you go, we're still finding copper here. Yep. Let's stop the hole because we hit our depth. It's like, nope, keep going. Keep going. Um, and so he's looked around uh, and he's found these things. And he's just, first of all, he's just, they joke that he uh, created, tr- tr- explained to Steve Job the reality distortion field, way of dealing with people. Like general rule I've always had is you meet with Robert, whether it's in a group meeting or one-on-one, um, you kind of have to give yourself two days to like. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't, you'll YOLO everything you have into the stock. And yeah, yeah, I've uh, so I've known some it, managers who can do that. It's 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 really hypnotizing. Even if you've heard the, even if you've heard eighty percent, it's like going to like a Rolling Stones concert. You've heard all of the songs before, but it's still it's, it's still, still awesome. incredible. Well, so, so let me ask. So, I, so, so, I, uh, but I want, but here I have an electric. Let me funnel this down in i love to i'm not concise but it's a great story to tell like here's a guy who has resources has an incredible way with people and understands exploration so what he's able to do that if you or i went around with a bhp business card is he can spend years talking to landowners and putting together very promising packages of where they just haven't been drilled for 30 years because no one was ever able to put the land package together, link up all the rights, get the terms right, and then also bring in the exploration skills to do seismic or geophysics or electromag or whatever it requires, uh, which 
Typhoon is his magical way of looking deeper into the ground uh, over long areas to figure out where to drill blind. Um, but he's able to do this. And like Ivan Electric has two main projects. And for full disclosure, I invested in Ivan Electric privately uh, in 2021 at an average cost basis of 580. So I'm in this uh, probably a little more egregiously uh, sizing wise, but bet the jockey. <laughs> and a couple things about this. So there's multiple projects. There's a Vanadium Redox uh, battery business in there, which you look at the convert they did like a few years ago, it's probably a it could be worth a hundred two hundred million bucks, but let's just leave that to the side. And Robert will be furious when I say let's also set aside the optionality of typhoon because mining investors aren't technology investors. Yeah, I was just gonna ask because their their investor deck, their S1 leads off with the two projects that we're gonna discuss, but their investor deck actually leads leads off with typhoon. And I was like, is this it, it seems like a mining play to me, but if you're leading off with Typhoon, you're, you're kind of making a signal. Hey, this is where we think the, the secret sauce, the real value. I, I wasn't sure if I was reading too much into that. Well, I actually think it's 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 something that um, we are also focused on the free cash flow. What's the project? What's it going to be worth? But the reality is we've walked every – we have basically, I think, as a human species, walked every square meter – of this planet at this point, probably, or we've satellite imaged it. Um, we have a very robust uh, science and geology. I think anything that's kind of at surface, for the most part, we've kind of looked at it. Maybe something got overlooked or there was a fault that we didn't pick up on. But a lot of the near surface stuff where you're walking in the Andes of Peru and Chile and you go, oh, I see that. And then you drill a 300 meter hole and boom, you hit 1% copper. Um, I like that stuff's kind of like what we're the, the, the copper grades for open pits that get people excited today are like a fraction of what they were 20, 30 years ago. And so we've needed more technology. We need more innovation to make those projects economic and get built. QB2 is a 0.4 copper but it's a low strip ratio, so you don't have to move as much waste. Um, whereas I have no mines, it's underground, but we're talking six, 7% copper, multiple tens of meters. So it's like, okay, I can understand multiple meters. We just got to get underground and basically dig a tunnel. Um, and it's high enough grade, it's 10x the grade. So the thing is, what's actually left is what can we not see? Because you're not going to punch holes blindly, drilling is expensive. But we have technology now to kind of go look and say, okay, well, and I'll bring it to Oyatole as a great example of this in Mongolia. Uh, BHP saw some expression at surface and there was a nice little open pit, not enough to build something in the Gobi Desert. Uh, but there was a nice little open pit. But what, when Robert got his hands on that, it was, where's the rest of the system? And they punched 90 holes into that. And Typhoon did not find this, but... They punched 90 holes into the Gobi Desert and they had to go down. Geez, must have been like 500 meters. It was like two to 500 meters down before they hit the Hugo Demet, uh, deposit that's now becoming a block cave. Like, you just think like the idea of how crazy you have to think to go blindly look 
and say, we're going to drill half a kilometer before we're even going to hit something. Um, it's, it's rare. Um, and it's the same way still then, like you look at Pillow in Argentina, you have an oxide cap, which was one way of looking at, it. but then you have this mediocre sulfide porphyry that kind of doesn't merit itself. It, it, it was very QB2-esque, but then they go and they drill deep because they're trying to think through the geology and they hit this hole 41 with massive grade and it's game on. And the Phil's stock price shows that. So what I think electric is really kind of doing is they've come back to the West with a guy who goes, loves exploration, has built his fortune off of it. And let's start with Utah, Tintec, which he took seven years for him to put this package together. Freeport has the land next door, but you have this package where you've had mining historically, like high-grade precious metals here, there, and with the geologic theories uh, and analysis and using Typhoon, uh, there's a belief that there's potentially a massive porphyry at depth. Uh, now you're going to have to drill deep. Um, what is the potential issues here? You're below the water table. Um, it could be very hot down there. So you'd need massive ventilation. You'd need, you want to have as few people down there as possible. Uh, but if you found a massive high-grade porphyry system in Utah, 60 miles from Bingham Canyon, which is the biggest hole, man-made hole in the world, um, in a world where we want to have more mining and security of supply, that becomes a very strategic asset. Now, the question is, there's three poor free targets they want to drill. Um, do, they hit, do they hit on the first go around or do they have to drill this for like a year to understand more controls? Because Typhoon doesn't tell you everything. Like the drill actually informs you. And it's very much kind of like I imagine a drug trial would be like, we'll see. Uh, but I think a guy like this who spent seven years putting this land package together I am really curious to see what he finds there. Uh, and then worst case, you have a pile of land outside Provo, Utah, which uh, thanks to uh, how the Mormons uh, believe in having large families, it's a very fast growing place. So worst case, it's a real estate play. <laughs> no no comment, Paul. I, I think if it goes to real estate play, you might be. But let me ask, and this question is going to apply to both Santa Cruz, which we haven't talked about, that's the Arizona, and Tintic, right? Like, Maybe a little more Santa Cruz, but Tintic, as you said, it's 60 miles south of a, a big Rio mine. Uh, Santa Cruz is in Arizona, and I looked, and within about 150 miles, there's like 20 other copper projects within 150 miles, if I remember correctly. And I think the person- 10, 10%, 10% of copper mined in the world, I believe, has come from Arizona. So I believe just the first thing, as a you know generalist who hasn't spent tons of time on mining- I hear, hey, this guy's got a fantastic background. I get that. But he's going to places in the U.S. Like, it seems like U.S. would be pretty picked over and think and just going and saying, hey, this one little spot of land where, you know, a hundred other mines are, I found something that's going to be revolutionary and like, not revolutionary, but it's going to be a great project. And it almost, it strikes me as I'm just a little incredulous that he could find this kind of diamond in the rough where you know, 30 other people are looking in the rough right around him or something. I think, so Santa Cruz was a very pleasant surprise. It actually wasn't in the portfolio uh, 
uh, in the summer of 21 when I invested. Um, it came in in the fall. And I think it's a really interesting story because the project was discovered by David Lowell, a legendary geologist, probably 50 years ago. But the surface rights and the subsurface mineral rights got disconnected. And I think it's a case of really just shows how this guy knows how to do deals and work through business. Uh, was able to kind of sit through and say, put the package together in a way that, I don't know, like how often does like, the head of exploration or the head of copper change at these major mining companies. Um, it's a, it's a nuance to put it all together and say, okay, like this is what, this will probably be an underground mine. Uh, and also what's very unique here is you look at there's Santa Cruz, there's Texaco, there's the, there's the Texaco target. And there's a few other blind targets that really haven't been drilled because this land hasn't really, it's kind of just been there for 40 years. Um, and with Typhoon, it's like, okay, well, we kind of see the, what the signature of the Santa Cruz deposit is, and the Texaco deposit looks similar, and there's a few other on there, like uh, Arizona Sonoras to the north, and their park sailor clearly continues on to uh, the Santa Cruz property. Uh, but if you go and drill out, and actually there's two or three times more copper there than originally thought, well, economies of scale just show, okay, now we have something that could really just be much more interesting. Um, but it's one of those things where you're like, I just can't believe he's the guy who put this all together. And you sit there and you go, well, also I kind of get it because it's, it was in a private, it was in his private company. He's able to fly in and see the real estate guy who has the surface rights. He can talk to the mineral rights guys and talk about through. And it's just a way that you can, you can move fast, make decisions, and build the relationships uh, to make things work. And I think it's a huge endorsement, frankly, that Taylor Melvin, uh, who had a really long, successful career at Freeport, uh, has chosen uh, to come work with Robert on this. Um, that is a that is a really talented executive and a huge endorsement. That's the new CEO. Yeah. I was uh, one of the questions, but I, we're starting to run short on time, so I'll just lob it up. If you look at his equity package, I, and you can say it if you know, but I, I just looked this morning, so I know 500000 base salary, fine. Uh, maybe he hits all his bonus targets, $1.5 million. So he's getting about $2 million annually if he's hitting his bonus. But guess what? It's all about the stock. 500,000 options struck at 1175, 750,000 RSUs. Like this is a man who is betting on this stock working and working in a big, big way. And it's mining. So yes, he, you, you probably want to take all the optionality to the upside because if it doesn't go like, yeah, you'll lose the job, but he's really equity incented. And I thought that was uh, just really interesting. I don't know if you want to comment on anything else there. Look, I think Freeport has the land. Uh, adjacent to the Ivanhoe Electric Tintic package. Um, I think Santa Cruz is um, right in Freeport's backyard as a Phoenix headquartered company with uh, several mines in Arizona. Um, I think the Santa, it shows that this guy understands that Santa Cruz is logically a mine and the true potential of Tintic. Yeah, you would want all the optionality in the world. And I frankly prefer when my CEOs uh, are incentivized. Um, and in that context, Robert Friedland owns, I don't know, you have it on Bloomberg, was it 15 to 19.9% of this company? Yeah, it, it it's big. 
Uh, it's just, big. And, and, and also what you won't see on there, um, but it was reported by the Financial Times. BHP owns 4.5% of this company. That's a natural acquire if I've ever heard one right there. Uh, just on Friedman, so you mentioned, again, as somebody who's just generalist skeptical, he's got a great background, but you know, generalist and just looking, oh, you found this needle in the haystack. I hear you on, this is a man, he knows how to get deals done. He's got great relations and stuff, but most of his recent stuff, not all, but most of his stuff has come internationally. And again, I just wonder as a skeptical, I like, hey, is this the guy who's great to, is this Warren Buffett going into the airlines, right? Everybody goes into goes into one thing once and they think they found, and they, they get crushed. And it, did he come into the U.S.? And yes, he's great internationally, but he came to the U.S. and thought, oh, I can pick these great spots, even though these giant companies have looked all around it. And it kind of, you know, going to gonna end up eating it, if that makes sense. You know, it's, it's obviously a risk with exploration. This is, this is not the, this is the, again, the opposite end of the spectrum of the Whitehaven trade or yep. the Glencore trade. It is, where do we fill the pipeline back up? Um, I think my view on this is that I think Santa Cruz, I have not bothered to try to build a preliminary economic assessment of Santa Cruz. We'll get one in the first half of next year. Yep. Uh, but I think it would give me a, it would probably give me a false sense of confidence because like what, how the, what exactly is the underground mining method and how they design it. Uh, but look, I think what's going to happen there is Santa Cruz, um, if you use a 370 copper price, $4 copper price, I think you're going to see an NAV, an 8% NAV on that thing that is probably north of $1.5 billion. Um, uh, that's, if you can add in uh, some a resource at Texaco and show scale, I think that's probably where this all shakes out. But the prize really is, does he hit on Tintec? Um, because again, 25 overnight success, but if he proves out Santa Cruz is a mine that should be built and he shows that Tintec is kind of the missing part of Bingham Canyon, uh, then we're just in a world where the questions are going to be, okay, um, a major mining company will say, I think comes along and says, okay, we'll take on Tintec and we'll pay for the privilege of doing it because in a world where the pipeline is barren, the cupboard is empty, uh, great projects will get premiums. Um, so that's, that's, but, and then guess what? I think because he's so incented, he owns so much of this. Um, I don't think these are the last two, the, these are the, these are not the only two projects in the portfolio. And I think there's a world where we'll probably see another project here or there. Um, and that'll be, a, that'll be a, that could be a very volatile thing. If Santa Cruz doesn't work or Tintic comes up dry, um, that can be volatile, but this is a guy who will continue to go looking for projects. And he has the fact that he got these two projects. Uh, I think he has a very unique uh, deal flow. Just uh, on financing, right? So th this is a, a company, basically no revenue. They, they are going to develop mines, right? Guess what? Anybody who's followed Developing mines is expensive and developing mines, particularly in the U.S., is going to be really expensive. 200 plus million on the balance sheet in cash. That, that That's a Q2 balance sheet. We'll see what Q3 looks like. Um, I, I believe Q2 is at the, the IPA in June. So that has all the IPA proceeds, yeah. if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. So 200 million in the balance sheet. That's not going to be enough to develop these mines, everything they're talking about. What do you think the financing path looks here? Because this does become a little bit path dependent where – if they announce good results, the stock goes to 30 and they raise, it's going to be a lot different than 
if we're in a little bit a global recession, mining comes down, the stock's at six, they haven't announced great results and they have to do So what do you think the, the financing path looks like here? So I think, look, it's obviously, I think if you hit on, if you hit at Tintic, it's lights out and away we go. Um, so let's set that one to the side. Like that's a high quality problem. Um, I think the reality is, let's say, let's say it's just, we're going to develop and build Santa Cruz. Yep. Um, I think you then have to, you get the PEA out. I think we're probably having a conversation in the second half of 23, first half of 24 about the development path. Do you let someone buy into the project at a higher valuation uh, because they want the offtake uh, of the concert of the copper cathode uh, themselves? Um, do you, I think you just have, you then work through, do you do a project finance? But the reality is I think, yeah, look, I think you, you get the stock to, 18 or 20 bucks, uh, you're in a world where you will see another, you will see equity raise. Yep. Um, but the whole thing is, is you do create value with every, with every passing raise um, yeah. and how you use the proceeds. So like, I, I it, obviously I think it's a question of, it would really suck if things don't go great or you have to raise money at eight bucks. But Robert has a very good approach to always thinking about not the next raise, but the raise after that when he needs money. And I'll tell a story from the I No Minds days uh, because in 2018, January, um, the DRC tried to change their mining code, change royalties on cobalt and copper and change all the rules. And it, it really kind of put a damper on the um, on interest in the DRC, particularly for I No Minds, which at the time was trying to finance building Kamoa Kapula. Yep. It was a, yep. it, it, and, and, like, Great job, guys! I'm trying to build. A, I'm trying to build a mine, and you, and you just told everyone you're going to change the, the tax code. That's not literally really just got me. Yep. But you then saw him go. Okay, well, like, what's he going to do? Like, at, at the end of the day, like, it was like, okay, is he going to sell the company? Like, you've already done a fifty percent joint venture with Sajin on that part of the project. Like, what's the pathway here? And lo and behold, like. You wake up in June and he had Siddick come in and come in for, I believe it was 20% of the company at a premium. And it's like, all right, like probably didn't want to do that at 368, if I remember the uh, the share price correctly. Um, probably didn't want to do it at that price, but he got a premium. He got on with it. Uh, here's a guy who, look, it, it sucks on the day to have like a 5-10% punch from a, a raise, but here's a guy who's going to focus on the longer term and say, okay, we just got to get on with it. Uh, very much, if we're not moving, we're dying. So well, everything plays out the, here. Good. Yeah. I, so I, I was just gonna, a, everything plays out here. Obviously, there's going to be dilution along the way, but you know, right now, this is an investing vice, but the stock's trading at 12. We're not talking the greatest home run case of all time, but you get kind of like a reasonably bullish upside case. What is what are you playing for with IE? Look, I really want to see the 10 take drill results. Um I see a good result out of Tintech. Uh, I think it, 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 I mean, what's Philo's market cap today? $2 billion. I mean, it's apples and oranges in some respects, but um, you kind of can see if you have something really compelling, uh, this can be worth, I think, a couple billion to maybe even $3 because it's the US. And that's so just that, that high. Yeah. So I look at the situation, look, I, I think if I got 25, 30 bucks here, uh, I'm not in the size. 
I am today. Um, high quality problem, of course. Uh, but I look at this and like Santa Cruz kind of backstops me here. Uh, that gets de-risked. We learn more about it. Copper gets a pot. If copper has a positive sentiment again versus, oh, China's not going to reopen. Uh, short copper, we're in a recession. Uh, I think you have a couple tailwinds there, but I really want to see, I really want to see Tintech. Um, okay. And I think the, if I recall correctly, the IPO lockup, I think is like December 24. Uh, I think just though in general, the folks who that invested in this company uh, are going to want to really want to see the end of that story in Utah. Makes sense. Cool. Well, Kuala, this has been great. We've been running almost an hour and a half. And unfortunately, I have lunch plans that I need to go put on some real big boy pants for and uh, get ready to go. But this has been fantastic. I've learned so much from you over the past couple of years, especially on Cole. I wish I had followed you into the Whitehaven trade, but this has been great. I'm going to include a link to his Twitter handle. So anybody who wants to follow him and reach out to him on mining, Cole, any of these guys can do it. But it's been fantastic. And we'll have to do it again in the near future, hopefully. Yeah, if I could just leave everyone with one last thought here. Um, this is a long duration trade. I know the multiples on these companies don't suggest long durations, but it's not about what the commodity price is tomorrow. You are, I know a few of my peers uh, at Millennium and Citadel follow me. Uh, always nice at a dinner to be addressed by your Twitter handle after a few <laughs> balls of wine, but. The reality is for the 99% of us who are not Millennium and Citadel portfolio managers, it's not about tomorrow. It's about what does this look like over the next few years, yep. the free cash flow that's generated, the value that can be created, whether that's through buybacks, decapitalizing, maybe you get a multiple rewrite, but it's about saying they're knowing that you have these companies and thinking about the next few years, not the next few days. It, it's always funny when you've got somebody who says, oh, I see this huge super cycle coming, right? And, and I, I think oil is going to 200 and oil goes from 80 to 79. And they say, oh, I need to sell all my energy stocks because the market hasn't priced in this $1 move in energy. And you're like, dude, you think you think oil is going to 200? You think you found this super undervalued company? Like, yeah, if oil went from 80 to 20, maybe you need to readjust. But, you know, one penny mines up. Anyway, I hear you. But hey, I'm going to be and late and for lunch. I'll, if I'll, 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 I'll give you the exact one. The exact one for that is, Everyone knows I've been long volley because I think iron ore is 100 to 120 for this decade. I have watched that thing go from 12 to 24 two times in the last two years. And people will go, oh, China koala, what are you doing? I'm like, relax. <laughs> I'm not, I, 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 I'm, I'm willing to be patient and let the noise be the noise on that one. Like, let it all play out. They're doing the right things. And it's one last thing. It's one less thing that I don't have to think about or stress about. I respect your diamond hands, sir, but I, I'm going to be late if I don't go. So we're going to wrap it up here and we'll chat soon. Thanks, buddy. We'll talk Bye. soon. A quick disclaimer, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Guests or the hosts may have positions in any of the stocks mentioned during this podcast. Please do your own work and consult a financial advisor. Thanks.